0: This is Bill Newman, WHM.
1: Welcome to the show. And we welcome to the show Andrei Komenchikov. He is the director of the Ukrainian branch of Nonviolence International. He is the coordinator for the Eastern European Regional Network of the Global Partnership for Prevention of Armed Conflict, (GPPAC). He's an American Russian Russian American. By birth, he was born in New York City, he grew up in Moscow, his father is Russian, his mother is American, he lives in Kiev, Ukraine, he is here in the United States for four weeks for some family visits, and to raise some money for his organization, and to help us understand what is happening in Ukraine. Andre, thank you so much for coming in. I know you were at Westfield State yesterday, or today, uh, giving a talk appreciate your being in Western Massachusetts we are so very lucky to have you tell us if you would please you live in Kiev yes I do how long have you lived there
2: uh seven years
1: and what's it like living in this war in the midst of this war now you're going you've been in Kiev and you're after this you're returning yeah, to yeah, Kiev yeah, yes yeah, yes what's it like living in this war
2: well Ukraine is a big country I think it's larger than Texas and in a war, it is really crucial where exactly you live. I live in a suburb of Kiev, and I've been fortunate to live in a suburb of uh, on the southwest of the city, an area that was not directly affected by the fighting. So, other suburbs, just you know, maybe twenty miles, uh, like north or northwest from where I live, have been devastated. But my place, luckily, there's no military targets there, and so it actually has not been directly affected. Are there general threats? Yes, you know, missiles and things like that, but it's not something that, you know, you don't feel, let's say, an immediate threat living in my area. Are
1: there daily Air sirens or or, or take cover? Um, uh, Governments from uh, governmental warnings. I'd like to know more about that.
2: Yeah, They're daily air air sirens, and I don't know for better or for worse. To be honest, most people don't pay any attention to them. Uh, The way it works is, you know, uh, modern missiles. It's it's hard to predict where they will hit. So when you know a missile is launched somewhere. Uh, sirens can go on, uh, go off in, in half of the country, but uh, the chances that it will actually hit the place where you're located are slim. So most people simply ignore them. Uh, I believe that maybe in the last few weeks, when Kiev was targeted a number of times, Kiev wasn't directly targeted for about four months, bit, just before I left. I was walking through the streets, and I was commenting that, you know, it almost is like peaceful times in the city. Just a few days after I left, that was like three weeks ago, Kiev again became, became the target of, of uh, intense attacks. And, of course, the situation has changed, I presume, but I wasn't in the country already. Uh, Are you scared day to day? Um the first weeks of the war were pretty scary because, first of all, you didn't know this wave of Russian advance, where it will get. Will it get to your place or not? Where it will stop? You could hear the uh, artillery barrage in the distance You know, for, for more than a month. And then you, people adapt. You know, it's, it's human psychology. You get used to it. You listen to artillery like it's a, a distant thunderstorm and uh basically if you're rational if you can uh more or less uh realistically uh assess the risk you realize that the risk for your particular location is minimal and uh so you you just stop uh worrying about that that much but of course it's it's not the most comfortable feeling when you do see when you do hear you know distance uh, <laughs> in
1: a distance
2: explosions going off in the distance
1: how widespread is the devastation we see these images of russian of the of the remnants of buildings and communities yes. and hospitals that have been hit and schools that have been hit by uh, artillery or missiles and it looks devastating is, yeah, is yes. it uh,
2: devastation uh, the, there's serious devastation uh, again a lot depends on the particular you know time and place you might be lucky, you might not be lucky. I, 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 I tell this story, you know, about four years ago, I decided, I, I first when I moved to Kiev, I lived for about three years in a uh, rented apartment, and then I decided it's time to purchase something permanent. And I was uh, uh, exploring a few possibilities where to purchase an apartment, and one of the possibilities that I was thinking about was another suburb that is quite widely known now. It's the city of Irpin. And it happened to be—it's—it's it's a small city not far from uh, the capital, and it happened to be exactly the place that was uh, really seriously devastated, and was where the front lines uh, th- went right across those, that city for about uh, a month and a half. So, <laughs> uh, luckily, I, I made a different—I uh, I chose a different option, and I live in a, in a very quiet area that's just about. 20 miles to the southwest of that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a question of chance. And if you are in the wrong time, in the wrong place, of course, you'll see lots of devastation, and the risk for your personal life will be very high.
1: We are speaking with Andrei Kamenchikov. He is the director of the Ukrainian branch of Nonviolence International and the coordinator of the Eastern European Regional Network for the Global Partnership for Prevention of Armed Conflict. What is the sense of whether Ukraine will be able to live, and Ukrainians will be able to successfully live through this coming winter, which an uh, issue we've been hearing so much about with uh, not enough heating, not enough o- uh, gas or oil to heat um, uh, the economy in shambles, um, people, men uh, having been conscripted. What, what's, what does the immediate future hold for Ukraine?
2: Uh, It's going to be a difficult winter uh, for people who have been displaced or who uh, were unfortunate to live in those areas that really were uh, badly hit. Unlike my place, I I was one of the lucky ones. Um, It's going to be very difficult uh the Ukrainian, for example, while the Ukrainian armed forces were able to liberate significant parts of Ukrainian territory that was previously occupied by Russian forces, the Ukrainian government is asking people not to return to these places yet because the infrastructure there has been devastated and to wait till the spring, you know, so they don't have to deal with the cold weather and other uh, serious issues of that sort uh but I have no doubt that uh, the Ukrainian people will will manage these you know, uh, this winter that they will uh, find ways to uh, uh, survive and, and and I think that uh, it's uh, it's going to be a challenge but it's not going to be something that will uh, devastate the country or something that will affect a Ukrainian resolve to win this war.
1: I'd like to know this. You're the director of an organ- the Ukrainian branch of an organization called Nonviolence International, and you're uh, coordinator of the Eastern European Regional Network for the Global Partnership for Prevention of Armed Conflict. That does not sound like someone who is uh, necessarily uh, unknown to Russian authorities. You are uh, Russian-American, American-Russian. You hold both passports, by the way?
2: Yes. And? Yes, but uh, I... Since I moved in Ukraine, I've been really, you know, I I find it hard to think of myself as a Russian when uh, you, the country is bombing you, you know. It kind of changes your mentality.
1: So, <laughs> Are you in danger, personally? I mean, are you a target?
2: No, I wouldn't, I don't think I'm personally a target, I'm not, uh, you know, a world famous person to be personally targeted So, um, and uh, I don't think that, you know, I am sure the Russian military has enough other concerns than myself.
1: What do the organizations you're associated with do?
2: Well, in this particular situation we have been working on ways that we believe can help Uh, bring this war to end faster and uh, through the use of nonviolent means. We're realists. This is a war that will be, to a great degree, decided on the front lines, on the battlefields. But uh, such aspects as nonviolent resistance uh as uh getting the, the getting true information about the war to the attention of people in Russia these things can have a significant effect and they can help if done properly they can help this war end faster and they can help in a final count, to decrease the, the total cost of the war, both in human lives and in devastation. So we're trying to contribute to ending this war through the use of nonviolent means.
1: What's the odd, what are the odds that this war is going to end, that the armed conflict, the killing, the dying, the missile strikes, the barrage by artillery uh the uh what seem to be the atrocities committed um by russians against civilians, what are the odds that any or all that's actually gonna end
2: anytime soon? Well all wars end and this war will end. Uh when will it end, we don't know. Uh, I many people today say that realistically The let's say this active phase may last maybe till the coming uh, till spring of two thousand and twenty-three or something like that. Uh, I'm not a military analyst. I don't have specific you know uh, information what what our Russian capabilities to wage war. But I understand that one of the key factors that uh, this war in its future depends on is how, uh, whether the Russian population uh, is able to see through the lies that it constantly hears from its media sources that are trying to explain that this war is necessary, that this is a war of defense to defend Russia against you know, or the Western nation that want to undermine or destroy the country, which is, of course, a complete lie. But the problem is, you know, how many people will believe that? It's, uh, so if we can help people look, see through this misinformation that they're getting, then I believe that the already dwindling support for this war, it will diminish to a level that the Russian government will not have the capabilities to continue to wage war in Ukraine.
1: We are speaking with Andrei Kamenshikov. He is the director of the Ukrainian branch of Nonviolence International. We're going to continue this conversation on the other side of this break. I want to know if Ukrainians really back the war. Are they going to fight to the death for their country, or is that a Illusion that is being perpetrated by American media. We'll find out right after this.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
3: When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
0: We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of the white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400,
3: and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
0: Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is
3: this week's Shop Friday Downtown Sounds?
0: Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full-value gift certificates and you save 30%.
4: Downtown Sounds Workers' Co-op, a music store with new and used instruments and lessons. Live online or live in person. First lessons free when you buy an instrument. Plus, repairs of musical instruments and equipment.
0: Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com.
4: But what are we drinking in the wine bunker today? Random white wine. Yes. All right. Hello, I'm Random White Guy, and I'm going to be
1: drinking random white wine.
0: Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. The first
1: one here is the uh, Gomez Cruzado from the Haro region of Rioja, and this is a white wine. Now, most people might be familiar with Viora, but this is also blended with 25% Tempranillo Blanco.
4: I always forget that that's even a thing. Don't we all? The first sip... Almost seems puckering dry, but it really rounds out. A couple more steps into it, it, and it is lush and creamy. But it's not so creamy without acid. There's like a, there is yeah. a little bit of acid yeah, in there. When it's, it's too good. creamy, I get really bored, and yeah. it's like what they call flabby. But with the acid, it braces it, and it makes it really. good. Yeah. This, this I want like <laughs> scallops. You mean scallops. I don't care. I want them. I care. Scallops. Here sure. we go. Thank you.
0: Find your favorite wine and your next favorite wine at State Street. You want the very best opportunities for your child. Given the amount of time children spend in school each day, you want your child to be inspired, to be engaged, to love going to school. At Bament, each student experiences this every day. The Bement School in Deerfield is a close-knit community of students from around the valley and across the globe, kindergarten through ninth grade, learning from each other in the classroom, rooting for each other on the athletic field, and celebrating each other on the stage. We are local, we are global, and our differences make us stronger. We interact face-to-face, share meals together every day, and open doors for one another. The true essence of your child's time at Bement is preparing for a life of integrity, of significance, of joy. Financial aid and transportation are available to help make a Bement school education possible. I'm Kim Laughlin, Director of Admission. Please contact me or visit our website. Bement will be the best investment you make in your child's future. This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Andrei Kamenchukov, who is a resident of Kiev in the United States now for about a month and will be returning to Kiev, Ukraine. I would like to ask the question, well, this was a topic that Monty and I and Andrei were discussing during the break, which is there was this massive buildup of Russian forces. We had some people in the United States and elsewhere saying, oh, Russia will never attack Ukraine. Was it a surprise to you that, in fact, Russian troops crossed the border and began this military, what Putin calls a special military operation?
2: Yes. Uh, Two or three days before the uh, uh, war began, let's put it, Properly, the full-scale war began because the war in Ukraine actually began in 2014, eight years ago. The seizure, but the
1: annexation of Crimea? E- e-
2: well, the, the actual fighting began in the Donbass area in eastern Ukraine. And parts of eastern Ukraine were held by these separatist uh, groups that were basically just puppets of uh, Russian puppets, you know, and were under de facto Russian control. Um The uh, about three days before the war began, I was also interviewed by, uh, I think it was some Japanese correspondent. And uh, I said that uh, in in my mind, the odds are the following. Fifty percent that there will be some military action, but it will be uh, escalation of the already ongoing conflict in eastern Ukraine and that these, you know, Russian-backed separatist groups would try to uh, advance and maybe take additional territory, maybe, you know, build a, take a, a, create a land bridge to Crimea that's been annexed by Russia in 2014, something like that. Uh, 30% would be that uh, this whole... Story, it was just some kind of, uh, you know, not, nothing basically would happen that this w- was a bluff to get the West into and, and get, get Ukraine, you know, to soften their position in negotiations. And as I recall, there was a plan for President Putin and President Biden to meet, you know, in the end of the week, I think, of twenty twenty something 7th or 8th of February, just a few days later than when the war actually began. And, um, and 20%, I said, were the chances that Putin would really attack on all fronts with a full-scale invasion. So I didn't exclude it, but I fi- found it not very likely. I, I thought it was not very likely for one simple reason. I've been, uh, sp- I spent 30 years as a basically a a peace activist in different conflict zones of the former USSR. And I knew, based on my experience, that an invasion of that sort will inevitably lead to a total disaster for Russia if Russia undertakes such a step. And I uh, thought that Putin, who did have memories, for example, of wars in the Caucasus where Russia, like in Chechnya, where uh, there was a war when he only came to power and he, had, he knew something, you know, he had that experience. I thought that he should understand the disastrous consequence for himself and for Russia as a whole of such an endeavor. But, as I say, you can never underestimate the stupidity of political leaders, and a few times in my life, I made serious miscalculations based on the fact that I thought that uh, people in charge, people on top of the pyramid of power, should be just at least as wise as a ordinary citizen, but that's not always the case.
1: Well, I would appreciate your perspective on the leaders of the countries that are involved, uh, Zelensky and Biden and Putin, and how they are interacting, and what you can tell us from a Ukrainian point of view. You live in Ukraine. You've lived there for seven years in Kiev now. What, What is the, I don't know if you can generalize, but if you can, what's the view of those three really important international figures?
2: Well, Putin for Ukraine is the enemy. That's, I think, quite obvious. Uh, The United States is a friend and an ally. Uh, As for Zelensky, Ukrainian uh, society is always very critical of their leaders, and I think that's a healthy trait. That is what, uh, to a great extent, helped them avoid, avoid slipping into this authoritarians that can eventually... Uh, turn in a you know, open dictatorship as it happened in Russia and in quite a few other post-Soviet states. So believe me, when this war is won, despite this uh, clout of you know winning the war, Mr. Zelensky will be very soon very much criticized by his own society,. You know? uh, but of course, right now, this is not the number one issue today. He's a leader of a nation that's fighting for its survival, for its uh, freedom, and for its territorial integrity. So that says it all for now.
1: And is that a consensus? I mean, or are there those who are saying we should
2: give up? I
1: don't really. I don't mean to really uh, load up the question that way, but that th- th- this war is so many deaths, so much destruction. It's not worth it. Is there is there anything like that going on? I think
2: I think that the uh, uh, vast majority of Ukrainian uh, people today uh, are to fight this war till victory. I think that uh, the the opinion polls show like I don't know eighty five, eighty nine percent, almost ninety percent of the population are against any kind of you know compromise. And I think that the position of the uh, Ukrainian leadership that we will stop this, this war should and with a complete restoration of the territorial integrity of Ukraine in its internationally recognized borders, I think that position is shared by the vast majority of the Ukrainian population.
1: And is there confidence that the West and the United States in particular will continue to provide the arms and munitions
2: necessary to fight this war. Well, there are concerns because that's something that doesn't depend on Ukrainian society, U.S. and and uh, policies of other nations. But I think the resolve is quite clear. You now, when this war began, Ukraine didn't have that many. Uh, weapons munitions from uh, west. It had something mainly you know defensive like you know small anti-tank weapons and things like that and they use them very effectively, some anti-aircraft m- missiles as, as well. but that is nothing compared to the kind of weapons they are receiving today and uh, and they have been showing that they can use these weapons very effectively. Maybe even more effectively than uh, some <laughs> than they were originally meant to be used. So uh, today, I think that uh, there is confidence that overall uh, this war will be won. Uh, I I hope that uh, besides winning war on the battlefield, everything possible. Uh, can be done and should be done to decrease the overall cost of this war to both Ukrainian and Russian society.
1: Is there any sense that Russia is... No, I want to to ask this more neutrally. We hear and see a lot of devastation in Ukraine of civilian targets, or at least of civilian areas, including hospitals and schools. We read about these... uh, horrifying graves of mass graves. And I'm wondering if uh, those aspects of this
2: war are having an effect on Ukraine and its people. Definitely, definitely. I remember uh, in the beginning of April when Russian forces withdrew from the areas around Ukrainian capital that they held. And suddenly all these uh, 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 um, uh, graves and, and just uh, corpses of civilians that were killed or maybe some uh, prisoners that were also killed, which is obviously a, a uh, war crime to kill prisoners. Uh, when that, uh, when that beca- became, uh, that, that was uncovered, then that was, of course, a shock to people uh, in Ukraine and I think in the whole world. Uh, And that uh, had the result that the Ukrainian position regarding possible negotiations with Russia also hardened uh, significantly. Uh, So unfortunately, the the terrible things that have been done by uh, Russian forces or or some uh, groups among the uh, Russian military, they have a, you know, they backfire. They make uh, Ukrainian resolve stronger.
1: Andre Kamenchukov. before you go, uh, the organizations you're involved with that you are the, uh, so important to in Ukraine, uh, do you want to tell our listeners how they can uh, learn more about those organizations and if they want to be supportive, how they can do that?
2: Well, uh, Nonviolence International is a small nonprofit organization. Uh, its headquarters are in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can find it on the Internet, if you want to support or donate, it's uh, on the Nonviolence International webpage. If you want to specifically support our programs in Ukraine, you can find a uh, link to do that. Um, The Global Partnership for Prevention of Armed Conflict that I represent is a network of civil society organizations, so it has a office in uh, the Netherlands, but basically it's a global network. It brings together, it's a network that ties together uh, hundreds of organizations worldwide. I uh, coordinate the Eastern European part of this network, the regional GPAC network, GPAC for Global Partnership for International Armed Conflict. So the regional GPAC network in Eastern Europe, about 25 organizations and about half of these organizations are in Ukraine.
1: We have been speaking with Andrei Kamenchikov. He is in Western Massachusetts for another day or two. He's on his American speaking tour and visiting with family. We thank you so much for your time, for your insights. Please stay safe.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
5: This is Bill Newman,
0: WHMP.
4: Now the latest from WHMP, I'm Monty Belmonte, in for Jess Tyler. During National Prescription Drug Take-Back Day on Saturday, police departments in Hampshire and Franklin County collected a combined total of nearly one ton of drugs. The official weigh-in was 1,935 pounds, which is 300 pounds more than was collected in the spring. Of the participating community, South Hadley had the largest volume of drugs deposited with 379 pounds, according to the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Police from South Hadley attributed the high volume to their numerous drug deposit boxes throughout the community, which are always available to the public, including in the police station lobby. The Franklin County Community Development Corporation has received a $495,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. This year's grant will fund a food business incubator program to provide businesses with resources they need in order to make positive impacts on the local food system. John Waite, the executive director of the FCCDC, said, We're grateful the USDA Rural Development recognized that our program not only supports farmers and food entrepreneurs, but also strengthens the local food system. The town of Rowe will be holding a special town meeting Thursday at Rowe Elementary School Gymnasium at 6 p.m., on the warrant for the meeting is a vote on authorizing the town to negotiate and enter into payment in lieu of taxes for a five-year term with Bear Swamp Power Company and Great River Hydro, who've appealed the valuation of their facilities. With the valley's most accurate and dependable weather, 22 News Storm Team meteorologist Nick Oresco.
5: I am Nick Mostly sunny skies continue this evening with temperatures in the 60s dropping to the mid-50s. Mostly clear tonight with lows in the upper 30s to low 40s. I'm Nick on 101.5 WHMP.
4: I'm Monty Belmonte in for Jess Tyler, WHMP News. Now a WHMP news brief in Spanish thanks to our partners
6: at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. El gobernador Charlie Baker escribió una carta al secretario de Seguridad Nacional Alejandro Mayorkas y al secretario de Salud y Servicios Humanos Javier Becerra el lunes, instando a la administración de Biden a hacer más para ayudar a estados como Massachusetts a apoyar a los inmigrantes que buscan asilo y que llegan de países como Haití. El gobernador discrepó con lo que describió como un sistema bifurcado que ofrece más recursos y apoyo a los inmigrantes que llegan de lugares como Afganistán y Ucrania que de Haití y Cuba, y les dificulta obtener permisos para ir a trabajar legalmente. La administración ha sido objeto de críticas recientemente por su decisión de reubicar a los inmigrantes que llegan al estado a hoteles en Plymouth y Kingston, ya que el sistema de refugio se ha visto abrumado y el estado no puede atender completamente a todos los recién llegados. Baker pidió a Mallorca y Becerra que agilicen la emisión de permisos de trabajo para que los solicitantes de asilo y los recién llegados puedan mantener a sus familias y contribuir a la economía. También dijo que el gobierno federal debe nivelar el campo de juego para los recién llegados de todos los países y en todas las circunstancias para que todos tengan acceso a los mismos programas federales y el Estado pueda apoyar adecuadamente su reasentamiento. En otras informaciones, el presidente del Tribunal Supremo, John Roberts, suspendió temporalmente el martes la entrega de las declaraciones de impuestos del expresidente Donald Trump a un comité del Congreso. Sin la intervención de la Corte, las declaraciones de impuestos podrían haber sido entregadas el jueves por el Departamento del Tesoro al Comité de Medios y Arbitrios de la Cámara de Representantes, controlado por los demócratas. Roberts le dio al Comité hasta el 10 de noviembre para responder. Yo soy Johan Reshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP.
4: That was a news brief in Spanish thanks to our partners at Holyoke Media.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We welcome back to our show Kathleen Anderson, who is a reparations activist, former president of the Amherst branch of the NAACP, and a member of national organizations that are fighting for reparations. We also have with us today Alan Davis, an educator, a racial justice and reparations activist. And they are with us today because we should also note that Alan is an educator and one of the leaders of Racial Justice Rising, based in Franklin County, and a member of Bridge for Unity on the board of the Karuna Center for Peace Building. They are with us today because there is an event we want you to know about, an important event. And let me start just because, Alan, you haven't been with us in a long time, and Kathleen Anderson has been with us a number of times. We are so pleased. Uh, she's been with us on our Black in the Valley segment. Let me start with you, Alan. What is this event that is happening? And then we'll continue on with kathleen and why it's so important alan what is the event when and where and why
7: hey thanks bill yeah it's a very exciting event that kathleen and i want to invite everyone to being sponsored by bridge for unity presents mojuba commemoration of our african ancestors and intergroup dialogue on reparations at the unitarian meeting house 121 North Pleasant Street, Amherst, this Sunday, just a few days from now, November 6th, from 2 to 5 p.m. And it's going to include an ancestor veneration ceremony, vibrations, prayers, drums, song, dance, and poetry. And that's going to be followed by an intergroup dialogue, which will give everyone there a chance to both hear about the broad meaning of reparations by Dr. Amalkar Shabaz, and there'll be other panelists with him, then there'll be a chance to break up into small groups and talk about what people heard, and uh, there are also going to be delicious refreshments.
1: Let me turn, if I might, to Kathleen Anderson, who has been involved in this fight for reparations and is part of uh, national groups uh, leading the fight for reparations. Tell us about how this event at the Unitarian uh, Society in Amherst fits into the big picture.
8: Well, this is an opportunity for people uh, locally to get involved and to gain understanding around reparations and what that means and how that is significant to us, not only as a community in Amherst, but our um, national community.
1: Tell us what's happening in Amherst. This was obviously a matter that was in the news very much, uh, and you were on our show and on our Black in the Valley segment uh, to discuss this. But what is happening with regard to reparations in, 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 in Amherst?
8: So Amherst has, the town council has granted a fund, a multi-million, $2 million fund to, for reparations for the black residents of Amherst. And in uh, preparation for those funds, the, there are, and this, there has been, uh, last week, a uh, local hearing session and then coming up on this Sunday, the 6th, at the Unitarian Universalist Society in Amherst will be an opportunity for residents to discuss and to talk about how those funds should be utilized.
1: I would like to know this. Uh, you are the past president, we noted, of the Amherst branch of the NAACP and you serve now as the female co-chair of the New England chapter of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. Uh, the organization's acronym is NCOBRA. I'd like to know how reparations will work in Amherst. And are we talking about individual payments? Or are we talking about programs? What, what does it mean for there to be reparations? And is what is happening in Amherst consistent with a leader of or a follower of, these efforts elsewhere in the country, as you know from your position with NCOBRA. Please, Kathleen.
8: Yeah, so um, the whole purpose of the listening session on um, last week and the session coming up on uh, this Sunday, the 6th of November, is to have the conversation to gain the understanding of how reparations uh, would be applied there are um several what are called injury areas uh wealth the wealth gap um, health and healing education among others so it will be up to the black citizens of amherst to decide how those funds should be used In other places, like Evanston, for Illinois, for instance, their reparations is being used for housing.
1: So when you say it will be decided by the uh, black residents of Amherst, um, could you explain that a bit more, how this is going to actually work? I mean, let me know. Is there a vote? Is there an organization? Is there a structure? Can tell, tell us more, more about that. So uh,
8: the um, the historical the Amherst historical uh, the reparations historical group um, is made up of a number of Black citizens, and the the um, the town council has uh, organized this group now. The black citizens of Amherst need to uh, have been asked to come together to talk about how those funds should be used. So how should they be used? And that's what we have to decide.
1: Uh, Tell us, going back to this event uh, this weekend, tell us how, again, if you would, uh, how that event will be utilized as part of this process. I'm not sure I quite... uh, Follow that. What's going to happen there that's part of this process of reparations and deciding how reparations and this money will be spent and utilized in Amherst?
8: So there will be a community dialogue led by Dr. Amil Kar-Shabazz where people will engage in conversation. How should this be used? What's the best way to use these funds? How should reparations be applied in Amherst?
1: Is this... Effort in Amherst being, uh, being modeled in other communities in Western Massachusetts or in the Commonwealth or across the country?
8: There's been a statewide conversation on reparations um, that has been held in conjunction with a couple of other Boston area organizations. Um, again, to have the conversation, how should reparations be used? Some people think of it as a check. Other people think of it, and, like I said, in Evanston, as a housing grant. Um, some people might think of it as a free college education for every student, for every student of African heritage. Um, in California, their reparations is a legacy based reparation. So people have to prove that they are descendants of an enslaved person. So various communities across the nation, if they are involved in reparations, have their own way of applying the reparations fund. So Amherst is now in a position to have that conversation on how those funds should be used.
1: Let me turn for a moment, if I might, to Alan Davis, who is an educator, a racial justice and reparations activist, he is one of the leaders of the Racial Justice Rising, which is based in Franklin County, and a member of Bridge for Unity on the board of the Corona Center. So, Alan, uh, you're a white person. What brings you to this fight?
7: Hey, Bill. Thanks for asking. I just want to um, emphasize, sort of, what Kathleen said is that every the, the local reparations movements going on around the country. Each one has its own flavor and a, a, approach um, from Asheville to St. Petersburg, Florida. Uh, I've heard there may be as many as 150 um, movements going on, including um, one that's beginning right now in in Northampton. Um, so my interest began, actually, when I read Ta-Nehisi Coates' incredibly revealing article, The Case for Reparations in Atlantic Magazine in 2014, in which he talked about the extraordinary wealth gap between the average white family and the average black family, which is about 10 10 to one. And um, that despite Uh, All of the efforts that have been made to make progress in racial justice and to bring greater equity um, for black people in the United States, that's where we are today in 2022. And as someone who has had a lot of white privilege and has benefited from it, I said, I really want to get involved in this and do whatever small, in whatever small way I can to make a difference, to create greater uh, equity. And, and the, the best response to that that I could figure out is reparations.
1: Let me, we're going to take a break. I want to note for our listeners, if I can, again, the event occurs November 6th, 2 p.m., at the Unitarian Meeting House, 121 North Pleasant Street in Amherst, Mojuba, honoring our African ancestors. Let me ask you this, Kathleen Anderson, do people have to sign up? Do they just come? Is there a charge? Tell us tell us about that, please.
8: Uh, yeah, so people are free to come, um, and it's free, so there's no charge. No one has to register. They can just show up.
1: Again, 121 North Pleasant Street, the Unitarian Meeting House in Amherst on November yes,
8: 6th. Yes, it's across the street from the downtown post office.
1: Okay. We're going to be back with more on reparations in western Massachusetts and the ongoing fight right after this.
0: This is Bill
3: Newman, WHM. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it.
5: So this is Massachusetts way of saying we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals.
3: 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP.
6: If you are on the
0: Eversource Reduced Electricity Rate, whether you're on it now or you're eligible, you can tap into Co-op Power's solar arrays and lower your electric bill. A new energy justice initiative allows 120 low-income families to go solar, save money, and become owner members of Co-op Power. Join Co-op Power's 1,200 owner members building community-owned energy. For details, go to the Co-op Power website, Co-op cooppower.coop.
9: What happens in high school stays in high school? Not quite. In fact, quite the opposite. What happens in high school has a deep and lasting effect. High school is a time of discovery, of how you'll be in the world. At the Hartsburg School in Hadley, that means discovering more than the right answers to test questions. Hartsburg students take their science studies into the woods, for instance, or the garden, or goat barn. They study history through the lens of architecture, or art, or music. There's time to be young and curious and unhurried. High school isn't a race or a contest. It's a journey towards self-determination. Hartsbrook High School students learn they can handle adversity and cultivate an unwavering sense that they can take action in the world. Plus, they sing together. Schedule a visit anytime. Visiting day for current eighth graders is this Wednesday, November 2nd, from 8 a.m. until about noon. Spend time with students and teachers and see what high school at Hartsbrook is really like.
5: My name is Joanne Vanine. I am a CASA worker, court-appointed special advocate for the organization Friends of Children. I first got involved with the CASA program back in 2004. I was still full-time employed at that time as the uh, Dean of Students at UMass Amherst. The case that inspires me relates to a young man. There were issues of physical abuse, there were issues of drug abuse. Through the advocacy work that I did, this young man was placed with a family in Springfield. It was a rocky start. But the good news is that this foster family stepped up and said that they would adopt him. Almost immediately, I began to see the change in him in terms of his own confidence in himself, which clearly derived from a sense of security. And that also was evidenced in the way he performed in school. The really happy ending to this is I got a text message saying to me, look at my report card, and he is on the honor roll.
4: Learn more about becoming a CASA advocate by visiting Friends of Children's offices on Route 9 in Hadley or going to friendsofchildreninc.org.
0: This is Bill Newman, WHMP.
1: We continue our conversation with Kathleen Anderson and Alan Davis. We are talking about Mojuba honoring our African ancestors at the Unitarian Meeting House, 121 North Pleasant Street in Amherst, this Sunday at 2 o'clock, a discussion, a community dialogue about reparations as part of a nationwide movement. Let me ask you this, if I might. Kathleen Anderson, Mojuba, what what does the word mean? A Yoruba term,
8: uh, Yoruba West Africa uh, meaning essentially, uh, I give my respects or my humble respects to um, African ancestors. It's a salute to ancestors and the divine creator.
1: And you had mentioned to us during the break that this movement, the reparations movement in Amherst, is part of a statewide, na- national, organ- national effort as well. Part because you are the New England. Co chair, co chair of the New England chapter of the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America and COBRA. You want to just give us a, a sense of this effort in Amherst as being part of a statewide movement?
8: Um, I don't necessarily call it part of the statewide movement, but there is a statewide movement happening. Um, and it is uh, being led by a couple of different organizations, King Boston, Uh, Boston reparations. And the um, plan has been to uh, uh, encourage the uh, governor who has created a commission to study the status of African Americans, but to um, make sure and to ensure that a bill be passed uh, on uh, granting reparations.
1: Okay. And again, for this uh, event on Sunday at the Unitarian Meeting House in Amherst, you don't have to sign up. You just have to go. It's, it sounds like an amazing event, and really both a community-building event, but also something that will be interesting and informative, and I think will bring activists together in a very meaningful way. Alan Davis, during the break, you want to share a quote or two with us before we go? We just have a minute left. Yeah.
7: Thank, thanks, Bill. Yes, i um, Two quotes that have motivated me and I hope will motivate everybody to come uh, on Sunday at 2 o'clock. James Baldwin uh, many years ago said, not every issue that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I think that's a piece of, of what Sunday is all about. And then I will and with a, a quote from ta quotes reparations would mean a revolution of the American consciousness, a reconciling of our self image as the great democratizer with the facts of our history.
1: Again, the event is Mojuba, honoring our African ancestors at the Unitarian Meeting House, 121 North Pleasant Street in Amherst, Sunday at 2 o'clock. A really important part of this community dialogue and this community effort on reparations. We hope to see you all there. Thank you, Alan Davis, and thank you so much, Kathleen Anderson. We really appreciate your time, your efforts, and your insight.
8: Thank you. Thank you for having us. the
6: whole round world to I wish I could share all the love that's in my heart
3: Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka polka carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits there are polka hits
4: brought to you by saluzniak funeral home northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled thoughtful memorial care
3: It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning. driving until noon, WHMP. For Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station.